I'm Luke, I'm one of the ministers uh, here at uh, Rotherham Evangelical Church, and we are doing, uh, we're in the midst of a four-week Christmas series called This Changes Everything that you see behind me. And today, uh, we're looking at This Changes Everything. Well, what changes? Uh, When Jesus comes, he brings comfort to our pain. And you'll find that if you have the worship program out, you'll find uh, that title and the notes to this sermon. So I'd, I'd encourage you to, to have that by your side as we walk through. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't already opened the, the Red Pew Bible to the passage that we just read, that you would do that because that will help you as we walk through the, ser- uh, the, the talk this evening. <clears throat> it's Christmas time. We see that, the snow falling outside. Thank you for making it this evening, even uh, weathering the, the, the bad weather. But, but it's Christmas time, and what images from the Bible come to mind around Christmas? Tranquil manger scenes, angels serenading shepherd boys in the, in the fields, magi with exotic gifts adoring a newborn baby, perhaps. Those are all appropriate images from the Bible. Would images of exile come to your mind around Christmas? Perhaps the most famous piece of music during the Christmas season is Handel's what? Messiah, right. If you haven't yet sat through a version, uh, maybe a slightly shortened version of Handel's Messiah, you're really missing out. It's one of the most fantastic pieces of music literature. But one of the most famous songs in that oratorio is taken from Isaiah 40 that was just read to you today. And in Isaiah 39... Israel is condemned to a brutal exile when when God speaks to them, comfort, comfort, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And and as as the music plays, you hear this kind of lyrical tenor. If you don't know, that's a a high-sounding male voice. A lyrical tenor singing this beautiful comfort, comfort ye. And it's almost as if you're hearing God in his tender voice speak to a very broken Israel. But we don't think about exile much today, do we? At least in the Western world, exile is a, a punishment of a bygone era. Of course, we aren't entirely familiar with, unfamiliar with, exile, right? We simply call it today refugees. People who have been forcibly displaced from their homes, their families, and their countries. This week I was reading an article from The Guardian that was published a few years ago that gave several brief stories of modern-day exiles, refugees. Some of these stories were absolutely horrifying. But one thing that stuck with me as I read these stories is that although the events that led to their exile, that led to their displacements, were often horrifying, you know, state-sponsored torture, whole villages of women being abducted and and raped, it was just terrible stories. It was the pain of remaining exiled, away from home and loved ones and your culture, that was really coming out in these refugees as, as remaining acute. Even when these refugees were resettled in a safe and a kind place, life in exile is a life of deep emotional pain. You could hear it coming out of their words. They kept on saying things like feeling abandoned, feeling forsaken, 
deserted, discarded, separated. A few, century, a few centuries ago, to be exiled uh, was even a more severe punishment because whereas today many refugees are often treated kindly and welcomed in the country where they have been displaced, not all, but many, historically that has not been the case. Before the last few centuries, an exile would be considered an absolute outcast in the society where they were displaced. They were often given no rights and they lost all dignity. And this is precisely where the prophet Isaiah says Israel will find itself in chapter 39 of Isaiah. But in Israel's case, they are exiled from their own doing. It's, it's self-inflicted exile. Let's read again in chapter 39, verses 5 through 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, that's the king in David's line, the royal king in whom all the promises of Israel should be. Isaiah says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day, it will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you. That's the future kings of Israel. They will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then, of course, Hezekiah has a very, fairly curt response. Oh, that's good, because the bad news won't come from me. He's looking out for himself and not anyone else. The book of Isaiah comes to a screeching halt in chapter 39. Israel is God's chosen people. Hezekiah is a king in the royal line of David. God has chosen them. He's protected Israel. He's given them a land. He's given them wealth. He's given them produce. And God says, I'm taking it all away. Israel has not continued to trust God. They've continued to do evil instead of good. And Isaiah comes to Hezekiah with a very severe message. God is not going to sit back and ignore the sin of you and Israel. He's going to bring judgment down. A foreign nation will come and he's going to sack the capital city of Jerusalem and he's going to take you and your sons away as slaves. And this is exactly what happened in 586 BC. Historical event. You can go to the British Museum and look at all the inscriptions about it. The ancient power of Babylon invades. They steal Israel's precious treasures. They burn the land. They forcibly displace the people hundreds of miles away in a foreign place. And now Israel in Babylon Israel has no place to worship. The temple has been destroyed. They don't know the language. Their customs are gone. Their families are broken apart. Their community is dispersed. They, if, if the Guardian was doing a post, they would hear people say, we feel abandoned, forsaken, forsaken by God. They were separated from everything they loved and held dear. They were in exile. But Isaiah is very clear 
And hear, hear this point. Isaiah is very clear that Israel's physical exile, they're physically being taken to another land and, and made slaves there, is actually a symptom of the spiritual exile that they have already been involved in. If you don't understand this, then you will misunderstand the whole Christmas story. Israel had already spiritually abandoned God. They had already forsaken his good commands. They had replaced God with things that God had created. You see, Israel was already while they were still in Jerusalem, while Isaiah was speaking to, uh, to Hezekiah, Israel was already in exile, but a form of spiritual exile. And God promised to bring them into physical exile to make them acutely aware of their dire condition. And it's precisely in this moment of Israel's immense pain and doubt that, that God would ever provide hope and comfort it is within the pain of exile that the Christmas story actually begins to unfold. We'll have several points here, walking through this story and into the New Testament. But the first one is, God offers comfort for exiles in verses 1 and 2. Comfort for exiles. Isaiah 40, verse 1, God speaks to Israel in exile and he says, Comfort, comfort my people. There's a sudden shift in the book. It's a, it's a, you know, uh, Angela did a great job of actually pausing here. He's speaking to Hezekiah, and then it's as if the, the, pan, the camera fast-forwards 70 years when they're going to be in exile. This hasn't happened yet. He says, you're going to be in exile, and it's as if it pans to a little thought cloud of, of Israel in exile, and you hear God coming down and saying, in the midst of their pain, comfort. Often the prophets of God will thunder when they speak because they're trying to shake Israel and awake into stop sinning. But here Israel encounters the gentle, assuring voice of God. No introduction, just the words twice repeated. Comfort. Comfort. We hear the heart of a God who here is not a distant judge, but an intimate father he speaks tenderly, as if he's speaking to a broken bride. That phrase, he speaks tenderly, shows up a few other places. I thought this was fascinating. It shows up when Joseph, you, we remember, we, we went through Joseph, or the Genesis. It, it shows up when Joseph speaks to his brothers, when they're incredibly afraid for their own lives, and he speaks tenderly to them. It also shows up another time in the Old Testament when Boaz, we, we've done both these stories, when Boaz speaks to Ruth when she is scared about what her future might entail, and he speaks tenderly to her. To speak tenderly is to assure someone who is deeply afraid. Is there someone here that's deeply afraid tonight? You can encounter the God who speaks Tenderly, comfort, comfort. God is telling his people that although the near future is very see, the people who are reading Isaiah have not yet experienced this exile. He's telling them their, their very near future is very grim. It's going to be in Babylon. But for those who trust in God, your distant future is bright. You don't have to be afraid. I will bring you back home. I will restore you to me. 
In verse 2, he gives the reason. Because there's got to be a reason for this future hope, comfort, and restoration. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah is telling Israel that the God that God will bring her to an end, bring her exile to an end. He even seems to say that Israel's suffering in exile is an appropriate punishment for her sins. The evil that Israel has done cannot be erased, but it can be paid for. Crucial to the inner logic, okay, of the Bible is that evil or sin, injustice, whatever you want to call it, cannot be ignored by God. It must be punished. And you, you might be sitting here, you, you might not like the idea of a God who punishes sin, but I wonder if you are as passive about sin when someone commits some injustice against you or someone you love. But there's a tension here in the book of Isaiah, okay? It almost seems as if Israel can, Israel has earned God's forgiveness by all their suffering in exile. But a few chapters later, in Isaiah 53, okay, Isaiah informs Israel that they cannot pay for their own sins at all. It is, in fact, the servant of Israel. That Israel needs someone to represent them to pay for them. It has to be this future Messiah who alone represents Israel and can pay for her sins. So we know that although Israel in some way pays for her sins at some small level, real payment can't come from them. You see, the physical exile may end. It will end. Israel's going to come back from Babylon. But there's a deeper spiritual exile going on. And here is the important question we must answer. How can our spiritual abandonment of God be paid for? How can our ongoing failure to reflect God be made right? We're not told at this point. That's why there's tension. What we are told is that God's forgiveness will be granted through a future Savior. And what we will find out in the next few verses is that God will not fail to accomplish this salvation. In verses 3 through 8, we see a God who will not fail to accomplish this salvation, point two. Israel cannot save herself. Humanity cannot save itself. God must intervene into the brokenness of human history in order to save humanity. And let's read verses 3 through 5 of chapter 40. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and rough ground shall be become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. It's incredible what God's speaking. You see that last phrase? The mouth of the Lord. Just as in creation, God speaks and things enter into existence. God's speech has a power to it that none of us understand. 
a messenger will precede God coming into human history. He will announce God's intention to rescue sinners. Of course, in the New Testament, it understands this. The, the book of Mark, for instance, understands this to be John the Baptist. That's what, exactly what we read at the beginning of the service. And that's exactly how, when, when Mark decides, I'm going to write the biography of Jesus. This is, he starts in Isaiah 40. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet, in the Isaiah the prophet, and he goes right to these verses. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's interesting. When he starts the Christmas story, he starts in exile. No obstacle can stop God and his purpose to save. All mountains, they'll be leveled. Valleys will be raised. Rough ground, it's going to be flattened. There is going to be a highway. There is going to be easy, smooth access back home. He will provide easy easy access for exiles to return home. Nothing can get in his way. He'll move heaven and earth in order to save. He's going to cause Israel to come from this wilderness desert where there's no fruit back into his garden. But it's not, it's not a simply a physical, physical return that's necessary. If it is, then it makes really little sense for Mark to bring it up, right? He must cause their hearts to return to God from exile, from spiritual exile. And these verses say that his glory will be revealed when he saves his people. Notice, it's not just Israel in verse 5. It's all people will see his glory. I mean, think about this. God's glory in the book of... What what does Isaiah mean about God's glory? Think back in in chapter 6. God's glory in the book of Isaiah is the kind of brightness and purity that winged seraphs have to... As they're, as they're circling the sky, they have to shield their eyes with their wings because it's too pure and too bright to look upon. And he's saying that glory will be visible when God saves. Verses 6 through 8. Read with me. A voice cries out. A voice says, cry out. And I said, this is Isaiah, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You have to to understand why Israel was in exile from the beginning. First, they committed idolatry. They, they loved other gods more than the true God. Second, they were in, 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 they were in exile because they didn't trust God to keep them in the land. They didn't trust their God to keep them safe. They didn't trust God to fulfill his promises. So what they did is they looked to themselves and they looked to the, all the other nations around them. Okay? All other people. God, we can't trust. We need to make an alliance with Assyria or with Syria or with this nation. We've got to get someone else to, to keep the promises for us, keep us in our land and safe, because 
really, we, we need to hedge our bets in case you don't come through for us. Their exile is the fruit of trusting in other human strength rather than God. And here God is saying, listen, Israel, all people like grass. They sprout up, they wither away. You can't depend on them, Israel. They're temporary, we're limited, we're fragile. Only God and his word remains forever. Only God can be depended on to bring salvation. He is the rock that can't be moved. He can't be changed. He can't be defeated. He is the constant amid all the unpredictability of humanity. All human effort withers. All human planning ultimately fails. But the word of God endures forever. So he's calling them to trust God. He will accomplish this salvation and he can't be stopped. Okay, so there's going to be comfort. We know God can't be stopped, but who will do this? Israel must be wondering, who, can, who could possibly bring an end to our suffering? We're, we're slaves in the greatest superpower of the ancient Near East. What kind of person can provide us easy access to return home? Who can even greater change our hearts so that we return to God? Who can reveal the overwhelming glory of God that the angels have to shield their eyes from? Who can reveal that to us? Who can be relied on to bring this kind of salvation? Verses 9 through 11 answer that question. Point three, a savior who is both king and shepherd. God reveals the the kind of person who will come as a a king and a shepherd. Verses 9 through 11. You who bring good news to Zion, go up to a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, I kind of like the behold, that's the older version. Behold! The sovereign Lord comes with power. And he rules with a mighty arm. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Yet he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. God... God's salvation is nothing other than his presence with his people. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God, presence. And verses 10 and 11 tell us exactly what kind of God will enter the story. He comes as sovereign. He will enter the story as a mighty king. He comes with power. He rules his his kingdom with strength, a mighty arm, it says. That he, is, he, he, he even comes, when he comes, he will bring both reward and recompense. That means he brings both salvation and judgment. And in fact, his salvation comes through his judgment. He saves those by judging evil. 
This is a time, when this king comes, it is a time for rejoicing and for trembling. Rejoicing for those who have trusted this God. And oh, it is a time of trembling for those who have rejected him. But what I want to focus on is that this Savior who brings God's presence does not only come as a mighty, powerful king. That's what we expect. He comes as a gentle shepherd. God the Almighty is also God the gentle. And guys, you know, we kind of think, we have these glorious kind of fluffy picture book, nativity scene uh, pictures in our mind of what shepherds were. This was not a glorious task. It involved sacrifice. It involved cold, dark nights without a bed. You were often a nomad away from society. You were always in danger. And it was a thankless job. No lamb ever thanked its shepherd for all the sacrifices and danger that he provided, or protection from danger that he provided. So when God arrives, he will gather. This mighty king will gather his children like a shepherd gathers feeble lambs in his arms. And it says that God carries them, his children, close to his heart, in his bosom, as Ian mentioned last week. God saves those by taking sinners and bringing them within intimate proximity to himself. Ian said, I I don't just bring anybody into my bosom. (laughs) You probably don't either. But God brings all people who trust in him into that intimate proximity to him. He leads us gently. The great and mighty king comes as a lowly, caring shepherd who protects us. He gathers the ruined. He he raises the insignificant. He protects the, the outsider. He rescues the fallen. He leads the lost. He carries up the, the broken. We see parables of Jesus doing that in the New Testament, don't we? But what, okay, what does all this have to do with Christmas? Luke, have you read your Bible? Don't you know that Israel comes back from Babylon? Book of Nehemiah, book of Ezra? They even built a new temple. I know, I know. But it didn't last very long, did it? That temple got destroyed too. Because the physical exile was simply the fruit of a deeper and more significant spiritual exile that never ended. And that spiritual exile was not only experienced by Israel, it's experienced by all humanity, even you. And that's why this passage matters for us. No, we're not captives in Babylon, but we are captives of our own hearts, of our own sinful hearts. We have forsaken God. We have abandoned God's good commands that lead to life and flourishing. We have worshiped gods that please our own desires. We have ignored the bits of God's commands that we don't like and sometimes trumpeted the commands that we do very well, don't we? Very good at that. Trumpeting God's commands that are good. The ones we don't like, well, we just kind of 
pass those to the sign. Okay, so what does the, I'm going to use a big word, incarnation have to do with this? That means, what does God become human? That's the incarnation, God become human flesh. What does that have to do with all of this? After all, our claim is that God becoming human changes everything. This changes everything. The this is God become flesh, Jesus. How does it bring comfort into our pain? How does it change everything? How? Israel cannot pay for her sins. Humanity cannot pay for her sins. The guilty cannot pay for the sins of the guilty. We need someone like us to take our place. But we need someone guiltless to take our place. We need someone to become like us, but not like us. We need someone to represent us, but not fall like us. We need someone to experience our exile so that we can be delivered from exile. Number four, the incarnation, that is, God become human flesh, allows God to be exiled for us. The incarnation allows God to be exiled for us. The Son of God, Jesus, becomes like us in every way. He breathes like you and me. He grows and he learns like us. Last week, someone asked in, um, in, our, in our kids group, this slightly... It could be slightly inappropriate, but here we go. Did Jesus have puberty? (laughs) Yes! He became like us in every way. He matured like us. He experienced sadness and sorrow like us. He experienced temptation like us. He experienced thrills and disappointment like us. He experienced sickness and tiredness just like you and me. Had bad days. But unlike us, his sorrow never turned to bitterness. His temptation never turned to secret indulgence. His disappointment never turned to disbelief. His sickness never turned to complaint. He never in any way swerves from devotion to God. Jesus is the king who comes as a shepherd. You see, God must become a man because the shepherd must become a lamb. John the Baptist announces this shepherd. Isaiah 40 is talking about John the Baptist. He's the one that's coming to announce the king. And, And John the Baptist announces this shepherd precisely this way. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sins the world. How does this shepherd turn lamb take away our sin? Friends, he endures our spiritual exile. That shepherd king whom angels announced and shepherds adored and pagan pagan magi from Babylon worshipped that man would find himself 33 years later on a Roman cross. And he would say these astonishing, 
astonishing words on that cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross is nothing less than Jesus experiencing abandonment, forsakenness, desertion, separation from his father. He was an exile on the cross to redeem us from exile. Many years later, the author of the book of Hebrews would say, about 50 years or so, but we, Jesus is now gone to return to the throne with his father. We do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. That means he took on human flesh. We see him now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. How does this shepherd king get crowned? Where do we see his glory and honor? A brutal cross. It's not that death or a cross have any honor in them, in themselves. No, of course not. The glory and honor are found in the humility and sacrifice and compassion that it takes for a God to give, who has everything, to give everything up to save rebels. I wonder what you and I would be willing to sacrifice. What would we be willing to give up in order to save someone? Not just anyone, but people who had arrows pointed at us. Okay, what does this mean? Some of you are Christian. Most of you are Christians out here today. What does this mean for Christians? Well, listen, there, there were some Israelites who were faithful to God, even in exile in Babylon. For them, exile in Babylon, being a refugee in Babylon, was a season of Advent. Advent means waiting for the God of comfort to bring comfort. They would probably sing songs much like we sang today. Not the same tune, right? But they would probably sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. They looked forward from a great distance to the God who would bring salvation. We, we have the privilege of looking back on the God who brought salvation. But, but our experience isn't entirely different from them who are singing that. In fact, when the Apostle Peter wrote to early churches who are enduring persecution, he refers to them as nothing other than, when he's looking for language to talk about who we are as Christians, he calls them exiles in this world. Our home is Christ's kingdom, and yet we find ourselves displaced in the kingdom of this world. And so we sing today that same song, O, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel, looking simultaneously back at the Emmanuel who already came and looking in the distant future for the Emmanuel who will come once again to put an end to our pain. 
So we sing in this very broken world with our very broken lives and our very tangled desires, come, Emmanuel, return. Comfort us with your presence. Put an end to pain. Make us who we are who we are made to be. Make us what we ought to be. Christians out there, part of the reason we come and sing these kinds of songs is so that we will remember week in and week out. We are not only exiles, but we are comforted exiles. We are hopeful exiles. We are joyful exiles. Christian, you can be deeply satisfied that the same Jesus who moved heaven and earth to rescue you from spiritual exile will return once again to change this world into the kingdom of God. Home on earth. Some of you may be non-Christians here today. And you might be thinking, listen, all this business about a God-man, God-man, same person, seems strange. A virgin birth, you know. You know, it makes for sweet Christmas carols, but come on, it's all a bit ridiculous, right? A friend of mine recently commented, thought it was insightful, Christians believe in the virgin birth of a savior. Materialists believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. Choose your miracle. But really, there's, there's more than just that, right? What are you going to do with the pain that you feel? Okay, maybe you've been able, you know, many of us can insulate us from some amount of pain. You know, we've got decent money, decent jobs, decent cars, we have homes where, many of us have homes where we can go and be warm at. And so, you know, your money or your education or your family or your culture allows you to insulate yourself from some of the pain that's felt throughout the rest of the world, but you don't, you don't feel yourself. But, but you certainly, no amount of money can insulate yourself from all pain, right? The richest people in the world feel pain. And even if you could insulate yourself from pain, what do you do with the pain of others? Is it really just meaningless chaos? Molecules slamming together for no purpose. Sometimes they, molecules roll your way. Other times they roll against you. But it really doesn't mean anything. It's just, it just is. Pain, in that sense, is just an illusion. We don't live like that. We, we can't live like that. We all experience pain. And something about pain seems not just unfortunate, but seems wrong with the world. Like it needs to be made right. And deep down, we want the wrong of pain to be made right. The incarnation, God become man, is God's answer to pain. He emptied himself to fill us. He exiled himself to comfort us. And maybe the best thing you, do, you can do today, if, if you're not a Christian, is just begin taking Jesus at his word. Perhaps when it all comes down, you can take him, Jesus, for who he claims to be. And you'll find immense comfort in the midst of pain there. That's my prayer.